Good morning. It is good to be together. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles or your phones uh, out, to open or turn or, or uh, get to Luke chapter 1. I want to read verses uh, 46 through 55 in just a little bit. But before I, I get into the text, I want to uh, invite you to remember the, the source of this song or this uh, text we're about to read. We refer to it often as the Magnificat. And the reason for that is in the Latin translation, of Luke 146, the first word is Magnificat. And, uh, and this is a song from a young teenage girl, most likely, Mary. Uh, we forget this, that life expectancy in the first century was probably around 35 to 40 years old. And so uh, often uh, teenage girls would get married because uh, that was the way to start a family and get things going before uh, life went on and moved on ahead. And so uh, scholars often think that, that Mary would have been 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, young teenage girl, but there's something more in Mary that I want to share with you today that I think is powerful. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, we uh, thank you for this song that Mary sang uh, so many years ago and for the gift that was uh, lying in wait as she sang it. I pray today in the midst of 2018, in the midst of our uh, struggles and challenges and blessings and gifts, that we would remember this song and it might transform the way we think about the future and hope for what you promise. This morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When my girls grow up, I hope they'll be like Mary. And like we talked about last week, that's a little bit of an odd thing for a Protestant preacher to say. I have a bit of a bone to pick with Mary's song, the first part of it. Uh, so if you're there with me, Luke 1, I want to start reading in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of a servant from now on, uh, on all generations will call me blessed. Now, uh, I think the last line should actually have an addition that I want to add today. It should read, from now on, all generations will call me blessed except for Protestants. I wasn't taught to call Mary blessed. Uh, I wasn't taught much about Mary at all. Because in the Protestant Reformation, uh, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Castle Door Church in Wittenberg, there was a divorce that happened in the church. There was this division that ensued. And in that divorce... Uh, both sides won some things along the way. Protestants were proud of the printing press and took scripture uh, and a focus on that with us. Uh, the Catholics got uh, the tradition of the church and Mary along with it. And one of the things uh, about that that I, I miss is this emphasis that is given because we've missed out on a lot, I think. I, I learned this lesson uh, that if you that Protestants don't really do whatever Catholics do the hard way. When I was preaching in my first church in Denver, I decided it would be good for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together as a church. And, and, uh, and when I got done with us praying that together, you know, this is the way Jesus taught us to pray. I thought that, that's straightforward enough. There was a person who came up to me after the church and told me and let me know there was a group of the church that thought that maybe, just maybe, I was trying to make this a Catholic church, that I was a secret Catholic with an agenda. Historically, if the Catholics do things, we don't. 
And ever since the Protestant Reformation, Mary has been a minor character in this Christmas story, a a woman who kneels beside the main character in the story, Jesus. But today I want to change and challenge that. I think Mary is a much bigger deal than we've given her credit for. My goal today is that we would have more couples in our church expecting mothers who would reconsider Mary as the name for their daughter, if not the first, then at least the middle. This sermon is actually a shout out to all the Marys in the crowd today who grew up in Protestant churches with people wondering if they really should be down the street in a different church. Not everyone wants their daughter to grow up to be like Mary, but I do. So a few years ago, I was called out on something that I needed to be called out on. As the preacher of a church, uh, often I'll spend time greeting people coming in the door after service, and I, I, I was... Let, somebody let me know that I, I treated people differently when I greeted them. It was a senior saint. She asked for a time in private with me to let me in on a little secret about things. And, and so she started out with a question. She said, do you realize that you greet little boys and little girls differently when they enter into the, the, the building, when you greet them? And I said, no, I, I'm not aware of this. Tell me more about this. And, and, and so she did. She said, well, when you greet the young boys, you give them a fist bump and you you ask them about their soccer game or their baseball game or their subject that they're most interested in. But when you greet the little girls coming in, you, you might say hello to them, but often you'll comment on how lovely their dress looks or about their cute pigtails. She was so gracious, but the point she made has stuck with me to this day. When I greeted the boys, I engaged them about something they were interested in. I, I showed value to them in something they were accomplishing. But when I greeted the girls, I engaged them about how they looked. And while there's not a straight line between the kinds of questions and the eating disorders that many of our teenage girls face, it is true that there are different standards and expectations that many of us place on our kids depending on what gender they are. And the simple questions that we ask shapes their future. It tells them the kind of things we'll value along the way. And I'll tell you this, I don't want to raise girls who believe they have value if and only if they have the looks to somehow pull in a a man that can take care of them. I don't want to raise girls who are obsessed about their appearance. I don't want to raise girls who diminish themselves in order to make space for others to lead. I want to raise girls like Mary, who believe that they are highly favored by God, who understand that the world as it is, is not how it will one day be when the kingdom of God is fully advanced the way God intends. And I want to raise girls who will stand up to injustice and name it and create and dream another world. Not everyone wants their daughters to grow up like Mary, but I do. See, when Mary constructs this song that we're going to read in just a moment more of, uh, she's not writing Frosty the Snowman or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. She writes a song that can get her in trouble. It's amazing how we've misconstrued the Christmas story, as if it's this entrance of a cute little child into the world. No, no, no. The first Christmas story was actually about a clash of kingdoms. It's a story about a tyrant named Caesar who has the power at his command to make sure that people go to the hometown of the father in the family. It was a patriarchal culture. And so this very pregnant, unmarried woman and her soon-to-be husband set out on foot, maybe on donkey along the way, to go to the town of David, the place where Joseph's family had come in. He starts out and enters into the world, this child, with a price on his head because he's a threat to those who are in power. 
See, if we're telling the story correctly and boldly in 2018, it still has the power to do the same thing it did then, to unnerve those in power, to imagine another world and the one those who want the status quo to be maintained desire to have happen. The song that Mary sings in Luke 146-55 isn't your average lullaby. It's a song created by a young peasant woman to dream again of how the, those in power's days are actually numbered. And frequently throughout history, people on the margins have picked up this song. They've put it on placards and they've marched. They've sung it as if to inspire and keep hope alive that things could be different in the future. It's this kind of song that refugees running from danger might have sung while they fled to new and safer places to call home. In fact, in the last century, three different countries have banned this song uh, in different iterations. During the British rule of India, Mary's song was prohibited from being sung in churches. In the 1980s, Guatemala's government discovered Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor to be too dangerous and too revolutionary. The song had been creating quite a stir among Guatemala's poor and impoverished masses, and these words began to inspire hope that maybe the current way things were isn't how they would always be. The third instance happened in Argentina. The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose children all disappeared after the dirty war, placed the words of this song on posters throughout the capital plaza, and the leaders of Argentina outlawed any public display of the song I'm about to read. Before I read it, I want to remind you of another, revol- another revolutionary, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in a sermon before he would challenge the Nazi regime and set up his confessing church, in a sermon about, yes, this text and this story, this song, in an Advent sermon, this is what he said back in 1933. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. This is instead a, a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. And so as I read these words, I want you to imagine with me this Mary, hands on her belly, filling the kicking of this Messiah who would enter into the world, dreaming about a day ahead that might be far different. Luke 1, verse 46 and following. And Mary said, or sang, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She starts off with this sense of the glory that she has. She has the favor of God resting on her. It's this powerful word about what God is doing and stirring within her. But then she continues on. And and we've sung the Magnificat in our church over the last several years. It's been one of our favorite songs that we've gotten to know. But what's interesting is it's only the first half. It's like the first verse of the Magnificat is the one we put to words. What we left out was the second verse, the second half. And it's a bit more challenging. It's the part caused governments to want to ban the rest. Verse 50 and following. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised 
our ancestors. If you're listening closely, you know why this song is banned by governments. This isn't your average lullaby, and this is not your average teenage girl. So here's where I want to make the hard pitch for some of you to consider naming your girl Mary. But to do that, you're going to have to honor me with a short history lesson, which for some of you will be inspiring, and for others of you, stick with me, because there's a payoff. We don't know much about Mary's family. Scripture doesn't go into the detail near as much on her side as on Joseph's side. But the fact that her parents named her Mary says more than you would imagine at first glance. Mary was the most popular Jewish name in the first century in Palestine. In those days, there were a very small number of names that took on the preponderance of the names that were given in that era. It was interesting as I did some research back and found some statistics on this as scholars looked around them at the different names that were the most popular in that time. Over 40% of men born as Jewish men in the first century were named the nine most popular names at that time. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Four out of 10 make up the nine most popular names. Over 49% of women were named the most popular nine female names at that time. Again, these are Jewish men and women. And get this, more than 25% of Jewish women were named either Mary, which is a derivative of Miriam as well, or Salome. So one out of four girls that are walking around that are Jewish at this time are named either Mary or Salome. And if you were to look at the scriptures to see how that aligns, it's pretty amazing how we find alignment. The Bible corroborates these statistics. Over 40% of the male names mentioned in the Gospels and in the book of Acts align with those nine most popular names. And over 60% of the female names that we find in the Gospels and in the book of Acts are those nine names as well. And 38% of the names in the Gospels and Acts are either Mary or Salome. So you see in the Bible, it's even more uh, uh, the percentages than even in the surrounding culture at that time. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that six out of the nine most popular male names and three out of the nine most popular female names were also names of members of the Hasmonean ruling dynasty, which we all know a lot about, right? Maybe out of Philistine. Who are the Hasmoneans? The Hasmoneans were the, the, the Jewish freedom fighters who won control of Palestine in the second century BC. So imagine back 150 years before Jesus is born, the Hasmoneans are ruling over Palestine. Finally, it's not a, a foreign power that's ruling over the Jewish people. Think back to the Maccabees and the revolt that happens, Hanukkah, the celebration of this oil and the lights that continue on. That's all during this period of time. And so the Jewish people are also known as the Hasmoneans at this time. And they're set up and they're in charge until uh, 63 BC, when the Roman Empire comes in and takes over the Hasmoneans. Uh, You remember back maybe in history about Cleopatra. Well, Mark Antony was actually one of those uh, people who invaded and was part of that as well as Octavian. And, And then in 37 BC, so think how close this is to Jesus being born, right? This is a generation, maybe a generation and a half before Jesus' birth. Uh, The Roman Empire installs a leader over Uh, Judea, over Palestine, this area. His name is King Herod. And he was installed as a client king in Judea, marking a definite end to the Hasmonean dynasty that had been in charge prior to this. Now, Herod was raised as a Jewish boy uh, and publicly identified himself as a Jew. But his decadent lifestyle and his connection with the Roman Empire left him despised by the Jews of his time, who would have seen him as kind of playing to the Romans rather than uh, being for his own people. 
So one of the ways that Herod tried to gain the love and support and appreciation of the Jewish people who lived in his area was to marry a Hasmonean princess who was part of the ruling class before them. And you'll never guess what her name was. Miriam or Mary. Miriam was quite a lady. The historian Josephus tells us a lot more about this history. And, and, and Miriam was uh, one of Herod's ten wives, but she was definitely his favorite. There's a lot I could tell you about Miriam. Her brother ends up uh, becoming a, a, an important ruler because she gets him in good with Herod, but Herod ends up drowning him in a pool after one year in leadership in the country. Later on, their own kids, two of their sons, will be killed by Herod, and Miriam herself will lose her life. But it was two times before that that Herod's going on a long trip away, and he realizes he may not make it back. He might die while he's on this journey. And so he tells one of those people in charge, hey, if I end up dying and I don't make it back, I want you to take Mary and I want you to kill her because I can't even imagine that she would be married to another woman. She's so beautiful. I want her to live with me into eternity. That's the kind of crazy madness that Herod put forth. Well, the bad thing is he does this. He sets up someone to look over her and, and who will kill her if, if, if this ends up happening. And And she finds out each time that Herod has put this order in place. And let's just say she's a little cold when Herod returns back both of those times. Uh, How do I put this with the kids in the room? She decided she had a headache a lot when Herod returned. The bedroom was closed off to Herod. She was somebody who was in charge and would not be put down in this way. In the end, Herod ends up executing many of the family members. Miriam was executed in 29 BC. Think about that time period. 29 BC. B.C. Just a little bit of time before Jesus was born, maybe around the time when Mary was born. Now, why were the Jewish people in the first century naming their children after members of the ruling Hasmonean dynasty? I think they named their children after these leaders as a display of Jewish patriotism. It was a prophetic move designed to remember their story, to be reminded of a time when they were in charge, to be reminded of moments in the past that they hoped would happen again when a Messiah would come and allow them to have the land that was truly considered to be theirs. So why would you name your your daughter Mary? Why would one out of every four women name Mary or Salome? Well, you would name your daughter Mary because you wanted Herod to have to hear that name over and over again be reminded that one time Herod wasn't in charge and he won't be again. And as much as he wanted to stamp out the name Miriam by killing her, he'd have to hear that name over and over again with those who were under, who named their daughters Mary. How does all that change your view of Mary? Mary wasn't some diminutive, submissive woman in the background of our nativity sets. Mary's raised in a family of Jews who read their scriptures and knew that the Messiah was on the way. Mary is raised in a family who gave her her name on purpose. Mary is raised on stories about rulers who use their thrones to oppress the poor and silence and use Hasmonean princesses for their purposes. No, Jesus wasn't raised by a quiet woman. He was raised by a prophet. And her words... Her dreams sounds a whole lot like another prophet of the 20th century. If you listen closely, I think you can hear the connections. In 1963, Martin Luther King stood up at the Lincoln Memorial and said these words. I have a dream. One day in Alabama, with its vicious racists and with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of imposition and nullification, one day right here in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream. 
I have a dream today that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh together shall see it together. This is our hope. Mary's song is the I have a dream speech of the first century. He who has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, he has brought down rulers from the thrones, he has lifted up the humble. You can keep a woman out of the pulpit, but you can't keep a woman from singing prophetic lullabies that might just change everything. Mary, did you know? We sing that song, and she knew exactly who she was raising with what prophecies she sang as she held her belly. And the message she prophetically preached to Jesus while she was having him in her belly was the same song I'm sure she drilled into him as a toddler. These were words he would have memorized. These words shaped baby Jesus. Because they're the very words that you end up hearing later on in the Gospels. The word that Mary says when she says, all generations will call me blessed is the word makarios. And when Jesus steps up to speak his first words in the first sermon he preaches in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. You know the first word he uses? Makarios. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are the meek. Oh yes, Jesus preached the way he preached because of a mother who sang songs to him long before he was born about a world that would be different one day. Yes, I want my girls to grow up like Mary. Some of you might not want that so much, but I do. So if you're picking a name for a little girl is growing in your belly, or maybe a surprise this next year. May I suggest Mary? Jesus was blessed by a Mary. And we all need a Mary or two or three in our day as well. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you that you chose Mary, that she was highly favored. And last week, I hope we all own the fact that all of us are highly favored as well. It's so hard to own that word, but God, the difference it makes as we raise children to be bold leaders who speak truth to power, who lift up the lowly and call down those who are in positions of influence, who rule with abuse. God, we, we need Mary's in our own day. God, I pray this song would not just be the first half that sees the glory that's in Mary, but I pray that we would also come to believe and sing and utter the second part of the song. It is the hope of the kingdom of God. It is the hope that Jesus would one day preach over and over again in his ministry. And it's the call of the church in our own day to believe that those who are blessed are different than the world sets up. To believe that you are doing something in a hidden away places in our world underneath stars with shepherds. To believe that young teenage mothers can raise children that will change everything. God, we thank you. For Jesus, we thank you for the message he came to bring, the good news of the gospel. And I thank you for those in our day that continue to bring forth this message. God, I pray this morning as we leave these doors that we would leave with more hope. We leave with a greater sense of the word that's spoken to us, that we are a blessed people. And that we're called to speak blessing over others who may not feel so much that way in our time. Thank you so much for the Marys you continue to raise in our world. I pray we would make space, that we would give ear to these songs that are banned by governments, but just might.
change the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.